My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor according or love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, have you become a transgressor of the law? Do you speak as those who will be judged by the law of liberty? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. And Father, we humbly ask for just Lord, the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now to worship. We pray, Lord, that you would take away the weaknesses of our flesh and any effort of the enemy to just rob, kill, or destroy any good thing you'd want to do in our souls this morning as we come to you in this time of worship and as we open now your holy word and and truly want to hear what the voice of your Spirit would say to us. So please help us, Lord. Give us grace. Meet us where we're at and minister to us through the power of and through the truth of your word, bless it as we study it together and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, whether you would realize it or admit it or not, could it be possible that the way maybe you have been treating someone in your life or maybe even treating certain people in your life could perhaps be a little bit unfair? Or is it possible that maybe the way that you're treating one person in your life or certain people in your life is maybe a little out of balance in comparison to how you treat and relate to other people in your life? I think if we were honest, we all at times can fall prey to that kind of mistake. And the passage we're looking at this morning here in the scripture is seeking to address that, to correct things like partiality or we might say discrimination or favoritism and the realization is this God loves everyone that's not just a cliche statement God so loved the world and God has an unconditional love for all of the world God views all people of equal value he offers to each person on the planet impartial treatment in every way that he relates to them. And he wants us, therefore, to treat the people that he loves equally and values equally 
the same way that he would. He wants us to view people with the same perspective that he has towards them. And this is what our text is seeking to drive home to us in this morning's passage. If you look with me back in verse 1, James picks up this thought addressing, again, a local assembly as this letter would go out not only to one assembly, but remember to believers who were scattered abroad. But it's a letter written to believers, to God's people whom we would expect should have God's perspective, but apparently there was something happening in their assemblies that James was aware of, and he felt it was pertinent to address this. He says there in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now the language there in verse 1, do not do this, truly indicates that James is, in the way he's writing, asking or sort of reproving them to stop doing something that they currently were doing. The language doesn't indicate, please don't do this. The language sort of indicates when you look at it, stop holding the faith. Do not do this any longer, he's saying. In other words, please refrain from doing what you're guilty of currently doing. And what he's instructing here is that the follower of Jesus in any congregation or assembly would stop showing partiality among their gatherings if they truly want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, which should be what their primary agenda is. And he says to do this, we must stop showing partiality. Now, the term he uses there, partiality, The original language speaks of receiving of the face. That's the idea there. When he uses the word partiality, he's talking about receiving someone by their face or we might say by their outward appearance. And what he's addressing, the idea is deciding what you think or feel about a person or a people group and relating to them simply by outward appearance alone knowing nothing really of who they truly are as an individual, knowing really nothing about their life or what they are, how good of a person they may be, or maybe even really how bad of a person they may be, despite how well they clean up on the outside. He's talking about treating people based upon what they appear to be. Again, we might use similar words for what's being addressed in this passage today, words like discrimination or prejudice or personal favoritism toward a particular group or showing preferential treatment. It's when we have a prejudgment about a person or a prejudgment about a people group and we therefore hold some preconceived opinion without really knowing anything about those individuals personally. Just some perception that we have developed sort of a biased judgment where we see a particular person And from what we only can see outwardly with our eyes, we kind of size them up and automatically we have this perception in our heart or our attitude and we may oftentimes even treat them accordingly without really knowing anything about them. We just sort of categorize them with a people group maybe or a class of people and we'd have an automatic view of what we think about those kind of people. And then we sometimes even treat them according to what we view as how is okay to treat those kind of people. And the Bible here is pointing us out as a grievous error to treat someone, whether it's in, listen, in an unfair negative way, 
in a discriminatory fashion or even in an over uh, exaggerated positive way sort of preferential treatment the other side of the spectrum which is just as wrong where we show partiality or favoritism or dote over someone in a way that's way more extravagant than we do anybody else for whatever reason and we sort of give them this partial treatment and we unfairly determine they deserve a certain type of treatment because of our perspectives and again this here is addressed in our text this morning regarding the poor and the rich James uses this illustration but the same thing happens as well where maybe we may have a partial treatment in regards to someone who holds a certain position as compared to someone who just seems like a an average Joe to us well well we're not going to treat the average commoner this way but that person I mean, they have this position or this status, and so we treat them different because of some social status or influence we think that they have. Or again, very obviously, which is a common struggle in our culture still, whether it be because of race or skin color or someone's nationality or their background maybe that we know about them. Or sometimes this happens with young and old. Sometimes we have a discriminatory attitude towards young people. Or we have a discriminatory attitude that's wrong towards older people or elderly people. That's wrong and inappropriate. Sometimes we do this with certain subcultures. You know, we kind of have different subcultures that exist in every society. And we see a certain subculture or representation of that. And we automatically formulate maybe a certain opinion or an attitude. And James is writing of the error of this. And keep in mind why he's such a fitting person to describe this. Because James, as we talked about was the half-brother, again, same mother, but different father. Jesus had God as the father, miraculously. Joseph was the father of James through natural conception between Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born of Virgin Mary. And James having the Lord Jesus as his half-brother, and he didn't become a believer till way later on after Jesus' public ministry, no doubt... He's thinking to himself, I remember a time in my life when I was thinking, there is no way that my older brother, who is a blue-collar carpenter, is anybody special or has something of value or somebody important that I need to pay attention or listen to. I mean, he's just a blue-collar carpenter. And what would he have of value or of importance? And lo and behold, he failed to realize that was actually the Lord of glory. It was God in human flesh and he sized up his older brother Jesus very wrongly by simply going of what he perceived of his outward recognition, not knowing who truly Jesus was underneath the skin being God in flesh. So to whatever extent James now says partiality is happening among our lives, James is writing this saying it needs to stop. And he's going to say in the text here because he's going to say it's evil. He's going to say in verse 9 it's sinful. He's going to say it's a transgression of the will and the heart of God and it's using wrong judgment in the way we're treating people. And the reason why is primarily because it is inconsistent with the nature of God. It's inconsistent with God's nature. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 10, Acts chapter 10 as well, that God shows no partiality. We read as well in Galatians chapter 2 that God shows personal favoritism to no man. Now, please hear me. This is very important. What that tells us is this about the nature and attributes of God. God is not impressed by anybody. I'm sorry to burst your bubble this morning. God is not impressed by anyone. 
There is no one, though we do this, there is no one going, wow, now that person's impressive. There's no one that God's kind of in awe of or in some way influenced in a certain way that he's going to give him an exception or a special treatment or, or some special pass because he's so impressed by it. God's not impressed by anyone. By the same token, listen, God also does not see any human being as inferior. There is not a single person on this planet that God looks at as if somehow they are more inferior less important or of less value than any other soul on this planet no matter what condition they're in what their skin color is who they are what their background there's no one that god views that way because this is not of the nature of god and this was directly revealed in the lord jesus while living in the flesh that's why verse one take notice of the text with me again why james says don't hold the faith notice what he says of our lord jesus christ with partiality He's saying, don't hold the faith, which what? Belongs to who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, it's to be lived in consistency with the nature, the character, and the ways of our Lord Jesus. So faith in Lord Jesus, which makes us therefore a follower of the Lord Jesus, James is saying it's incompatible with partiality, with personal favoritism, with showing discrimination. Why? Because Jesus never did this. Our Lord Jesus, living as God in flesh, as a man among us, he never did any of these things. Jesus was never partial to any one group. He never showed favoritism toward any certain people or race or ethnicity. Jesus was never snobbish. Jesus never overlooked or disregarded any person or people. Jesus wasn't unduly impressed with anyone. Whether it was a political leader, Herod or Pilate, or whether it was a religious leader who could quote Bible verses backward and forward, Jesus never catered to any certain group or got overly excited when he saw any particular person in a crowd or assembly. Jesus saw everyone with complete equality. He was not unduly impressed by anyone. Look at the passages we have in the Gospels. Jesus was just as willing in John 4 to help the immoral woman at the well as he was to take time and speak to Nicodemus who was a refined, moral, religious, spiritual leader in his day. He was just as interested to talk to both of them. Jesus talked to blind beggars and Jesus talked to rich young rulers. Jesus gave just as much attention to the outcast woman who touched the hem of his garment as he gave attention to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who was an influential person in society. This was the way that Jesus operated. Jesus did not see the wealthy as more important than the poor. Jesus did not see it more spiritual to minister to the poor and to ignore the needs of the wealthy who have just as much need of God as if somehow it was more spiritual to minister to poor people. And we do that sometimes. Oh, we've got to reach the poor. We've got to reach the poor, the poor, poor. Well, what about the poor rich? Jesus said it's, it's hard for the rich. He didn't say it was hard for the poor to get into the kingdom of God. He said it's harder for the rich to get into the kingdom of God than it is to put a camel through the eye of a needle. He was more concerned about the rich people getting eternally damned and lost because they don't see the need in their life. 
So Jesus never went out of balance in any of these things, whether, again, it was ethnicity or nationality or social status. Jesus treated everyone with the same level of interest, care, and concern. And so James says, let us never hold this faith, which belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ as we're followers, in a way that's inconsistent with who Jesus was. If Jesus' lordship is reigning over my life, then there will never be emanating from my life wrong attitudes about people that are discriminatory or partial in my treatment of them. And whenever these things exist in my life, whenever these things are manifested in any of our lives and we do these things, and Christians do, we can. And whenever we do this in any way, let's at least be very honest, we are not being led of the Lord. We're being led by our sinful nature and by worldly patterns and we're just conforming to the patterns of the world because Jesus did not do these things and we're to be his representatives and his spirit working through us. Well, we see this was happening apparently in the early church already and that's why James uses this example in verse two to four. He says specifically, for if, look at it, there should come into your assembly, your meeting, your gathering of worship, a man with gold rings and fine apparel. And there should also come into the same meeting a poor man in filthy clothes, dirty garments as he comes in. And you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, Ooh, you sit over here and in our best seat in a good place. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there or how about you just sit here at my footstool? Have you not, James says, shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. So look how James illustrates this. He says, so you're having in an assembly meeting, a gathering to worship the Lord, the Lord of glory, who you're a follower of and who never showed any unfair or unjust treatment to anyone. And he says, people begin to come in and a person comes in with the obvious appearance of wealth. You can tell they're successful, they're affluent, they have the garments on. It's very obvious that they're someone of great wealth. And he says, and what you do as a response is you just size them up by what you see. You automatically begin to become very interested in them. And you give them a lot of very quick attention, maybe even undue attention. Say, oh, it's so good. we're so glad you're here with us. This, did you get a bulletin? You want another one? And, and we're, so, we're so glad. Is there any way? How can we help you? Is there anything we can pray for in your life? And, you know, actually, hold on a minute. Let me show you one of the best places to sit in the sanctuary. I mean, you can see the projector perfect. You'll see Pastor Tony's perfect side. I mean, that's just, I mean, he sounds way better from that direction. And, and, and all of a sudden, you begin to sort of dote over an individual and we try and make them feel special and give them the best treatment, overly catering to them as if we're honored by their presence. As if somehow there's something so special about them and they, they get this sense that, oh, wow, they're getting this treatment and we're showing partial treatment because we feel they deserve special treatment because of who they are. And then James says the same day, someone else comes through the door and they're the total opposite. They're a poor person. They come in wearing filthy clothes. They're not as well kept. Maybe because they are in filthy clothes, maybe who knows? Maybe they're 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 dirty they maybe they even have an odor because they haven't been able to shower or to clean up maybe in some way and as a result you view them james says as insignificant they're not as important they're in fact maybe you almost kind of feel like they're a little bit of an inconvenience to kind of be tolerated for the morning while they're visiting 
And you wouldn't want them to, to tarnish your, your nice furniture because that fabric might retain the body odor or they might get the chair filthy and then we'd have to clean it or, or, or oh, they might... I mean, they might make our other regular attendees feel uncomfortable. So we kind of say the opposite to them. Well, well, you know, Adri, we reserve seats in this church. So since you're a visitor, if you could stand in the back this morning because everyone kind of has their own chair here or, or you know, if you could just, if you want to sit over there on the floor, that's fine as well. And, and you kind of, to the complete opposite spectrum James describes here, show very little attention. You're trying to brush them off. We, we feel they're of less importance because of who they are as we size them up. And look what James says, verse four, whenever you do this, overly dote on the person you deem important, or undervalue and mistreat the person we think is insignificant, either one, he says both, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James indicates there in verse 4 what verse 9 he's going to call is committing the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. Of in some way allowing our heart to give special attention to one person or to give less than appropriate treatment to another. We allow our sin nature maybe to make us overly critical of one person in a wrong way. And in the same way, we allow our sin nature to create a superior image of another person in a way that really we should not by giving them undue special treatment. Look what James says there in verse four. Whenever we do this and it happens again, ladies and gentlemen, it happens. It happens in the society, in the world we live in, it happens in the church, and it even happens at times among our families, where we can be guilty of doing these kind of things. And the Bible says here, whenever we begin to do this wrongly, he says, we become judges with, look what he says, verse 4, they're evil thoughts. He's saying your judgment when you're doing those things is an evil way of thinking. Because it's not the way that God would think. It's not the way that God would behave towards such individuals. Our thinking towards a person, if again, if it has an attitude of prejudice or discrimination, he says, that's evil. He's just very direct. He says, that's evil. You're in a wrong way using evil thoughts in your judgment. Your thinking patterns are evil. He says, if you show special favoritism towards someone, he says, that's an evil way of thinking. You're giving an undue measure of importance to this one person in comparison to other people. And he says, that's evil because you're sending a wrong message to them. They're really not that special. In the same way we send a wrong message when we treat somebody as if they have no value, when the reality is they have a lot of value. And either one of those can be incredibly wrong. And he says, this is an evil way of thinking. And whenever we do these things, again... In the church, in the world, when it happens, in our own families, we dishonor God because that's not how the Lord would relate to people. Jesus wants us to treat people with equality, with fairness, that we wouldn't be impartial. Jesus, again, was never impressed with any person, nor did he see them inferior. So we as his followers should have the same attitudes. We should seek by the grace of God and Christ-likeness to do the same thing. Again, James is using here in verses 2 to 4 the illustration of rich and poor, but we all know that same kind of thing happens in many different ways, as I said. It happens with people of different skin color, of different nationality. It happens between the young and the old. Some people have a very wrong perception towards young people. That's unfair. 
and it's wrong. And a lot of the times people have a very disrespectful and throwaway mentality towards those who are elderly and older, who deserve honor and have great value and importance still because they actually know a few things that others don't. And we can make this same mistake in so many different ways, you know, with who's popular and who's not popular in schools and, you know, uh, what someone's subculture is and we like, but that one subculture, we just have a real automatic stigma towards them and we have to be very careful. Well, since he uses the illustration of rich and poor, he carries on with this idea then in verse 5 saying, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen, he says, the poor of this world? to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him but you he says contrary to what God's doing have dishonored the poor man so wanting to show how God loves people and relates to people without putting any class conditions upon them or distinctions he shows how they were erring and often disregarding the very ones who God selected and was using for great things in the kingdom of God And in spiritual ways, from God's perspective, they were actually operating completely backwards. Look what he says there in verse 5. He says, verse 5 and 6, he says, You've dishonored the poor man, that is, you've disesteemed or disregarded him, set him aside as not really worth giving any attention or time to. When the reality is, he says here, but the poor of this world, they're the ones who more often than not were the most receptive, read the Gospels, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, Jesus didn't set aside the poor of this world because Jesus saw the poor of this world often had incredible spiritual potential because of their circumstances. They were very receptive to what the King of Kings was offering to them. And this is true as we look throughout the Old Testament and Jesus' ministry and throughout history. The poor of this world oftentimes were very receptive to the things of God because they didn't have to be convinced that they had a need or two in their life. They sensed their need to a greater degree. That's why Jesus also was so worried and concerned about the rich because it was hard for them to see a need in their life because they, they could be their own God. If they had a problem, they don't have to pray. They just pay. They just dip into their bank account. They don't have to... Many who are wealthy don't even understand the concept of actually, Lord, how are we going to pay this bill? Lord, if you don't provide somehow. if you, They don't have a concept of that. So sometimes it's hard for the wealthy to truly grasp, understandably, certain kingdom principles. They genuinely need a work of God's grace in their life to make them realize that though they may be endowed with wealth, that they have a poverty still spiritually like every other human being, that they can truly see their need. And here what James is saying is he says, look, don't forget, oftentimes he says it was the poor of this world who loved the Lord Jesus. The common people were the ones who were hearing Jesus gladly. They were the ones so often who had a greater interest in the kingdom to come because they didn't have much in this life presently. And so James is saying, what are you doing the people who had the most potential among you you're you're setting them aside you're missing the whole point of the heart of God in how often your own Lord worked he's saying again if we look at the gospels primarily Jesus' followers is it not true were not the rich the famous the important and the influential so often Jesus' followers were what they were just common normal people who realized they had a need in their life 
And so therefore they were open to the grace of God and they received what Lord was offering to them and they became recipients to become the heirs of the kingdom. And let me just say this morning, how wonderful to know that though we may have little in this world, Though there may be times that we struggle or maybe you have a lower social status than others or even struggle financially or face strain to get by, yet still you can be abundantly blessed. You can be an enriched person because you can be enriched to know you are a child of the King of Kings and an heir to all the eternal glory that Jesus is preparing when you depart from this world and enter into the kingdom of God. And if you love Jesus and live for Jesus, even if you don't have a, a plate of baked beans and hot dogs, you are going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb and you are going to be enjoying the eternal destiny of all the glory of the kingdom of God just like every other person and the promise of Jesus to you is you wait one day one day you love me you live for me it's not about the tangible stuff anyway and one day I promise you there's a kingdom coming something that will fulfill and satisfy and, and, and gold is so common they pave streets with it up in heaven People here, they chase around gold. They keep track of the price of gold. Maybe like going out there on scraping up some of the asphalt, saying, let's get some asphalt. Man, I wonder what this is worth this month. In heaven, they pave the streets with gold. The value system's different. We're just confused here on this planet. And though people in this world, listen, may dishonor you. Maybe you've been treated impartially. Maybe you've been discriminated against. Maybe you've been uh, you know, treated in a wrong way. Listen, God's chosen you. God's honored you. And even if someone else has overlooked you, God hasn't overlooked you and you have great value to God. And don't listen to the world. Don't listen to the lies of the world. That's often not a representation of the heart of God. The Bible tells us man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. And as representatives of the Lord, let us be careful that we don't overlook people who may have a great deal of importance to the Lord and God may have great interest in and let us be careful not to disregard people too quickly to not just glance at the outward appearance no human soul was insignificant to the Lord and perhaps I don't know maybe there's a person maybe there's some person in your life that just seems so insignificant to you but the reality is they may be the most significant person on God's radar right now that he wants to be ministered to there may be a people group that you have no interest in. Can I encourage you? Ask the Lord. Let us ask the Lord, give us your heart towards people. Help us to see people the way you see people in our jobs, in our schools. You know, maybe the Lord wants you to go sit and eat lunch at the nerd table. Oh, those are, them people are weird. Right. Maybe the Lord's saying, well, I'm calling you to do something different. I'm calling you to forget about your reputation and go love people that nobody else will love. To be the person who shows care and shows Jesus to someone that nobody else has any interest in. Or quite frankly, maybe there's the person that everybody can't stand because they're an arrogant, influential, high-powered snob. And so everybody hates their guts. And maybe rightly so to an extent, but maybe the Lord says, but you know what? They're just miserable and empty because they have everything with genuine peace and satisfaction in their heart. And so maybe be nice to them, though everybody else can't stand them at the job because maybe they just genuinely need the Lord in their life. 
And Lord, help us to have his heart and his right perspective. James says here, you've dishonored the poor. And then he says regarding the rich, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Verse 7, do not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called. So again, James is showing how this is so counterproductive what they were doing in that day in James day the wealthy landowners were the ones who were abusing so many of the common people they would lease out portions of their land and take advantage of people by basically leasing out a portion of their land to someone who was less fortunate to give them a sense of independence that they're going to get ahead and then very quickly as soon as it didn't produce enough that they wanted they would then drag those people into the courts oppress them and make them then as a result of not paying their lease rent become their slaves to pay off their debt and so many who were wealthy and influential were abusing their wealth and their power in fact he says there in verse 7 in jesus's day as well as in james time the wealthy were also in that time some of the most antagonistic against the advancement of the gospel and what Jesus was doing. They often did things, he says, verse 7, to blaspheme and dishonor the name of the Lord Jesus. The Sadducees were a perfect example of that. They were a very wealthy and influential group, but yet they resisted the work of the Lord just as much or more than anybody else. So James is saying, when people are resisting the Lord and they're being cruel and harsh, he's saying, why would you give people like that such special treatment and be so overly impressed by them and intimidated by them. He's saying, that, well, what, where would this perspective come from? The bottom line is this. We should never be intimidated by someone just because of how much wealth they have or what position they hold or their power or their influence. I'm not saying we shouldn't be respectful to people. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is just we give honor where honor is due and we respect authority. I understand that. But by the same token, at the end of the day, regardless of who someone is, we have to guard against this fleshly temptation to be overly impressed with certain people we think are special and treat them differently and impartial. And especially if they're individuals who perhaps need to have somebody speak the truth into their life. Because at the end of the day, no matter who someone is or what position or status they hold, they're just a human being. They're just a human being. They're a person with an eternal soul. They're not more significant than any other human being before God. They're on level ground and they are a sinner with an eternal soul that needs to hear the love and the truth and the salvation message of Jesus Christ. And they are someone just like anyone else and we need to be careful. We don't give special exceptions that if they're doing something wrong, we need to not be afraid to tell them. Oh, I mean, I mean you, can, you can reprove somebody else because they're insignificant. Well, that's not what John the Baptist's attitude was. No, he lost his head for it, so you might want to think twice before you... John the Baptist went in right into a political leader. And he said, well, what you're doing is wrong. This is immorality, and it's evil, and it's sin, and, th and, and he just spoke the truth in the same way he did to everyone else. But God help us that we would never be afraid to speak the truth to someone because of who they are or... Or confront them if they're in errors, if somehow they get a special exception because they're important or high-powered and we don't want to confront them because there may be repercussions or so forth. God wants us to have a heart of equality that we'd speak the same truth spiritually and morally to everyone. James then says sort of to address the error that was happening, verse 8, if you really fulfill, he says, the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, 
Then he says, you do well. So the way he says to fulfill the higher law, which is unconditional love, is simply obey the word of God. And he quotes here from Leviticus 19, where the Bible says in the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, if you do this, if you show unconditional love like this, he says, this is to obey, verse 8, the royal law according to scripture. Now, why is it the royal law? This is the royal law, he's saying, of the kingdom of God. The idea there, the implication, is it's a royal law because it's the law that governs all other laws of the kingdom. And what is that law? The chief law, the chief spiritual law that governs the kingdom of God is love. It's a law of love. In fact, if you remember when one of the lawyers asked Jesus a question trying to test him. He said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Which one's the royal law? Which one's the most important? And remember how Jesus answered? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God with everything in your being. And he said, the second's like it. What did he quote? Leviticus 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. What was he saying? If you love God supremely, and then to the best of your ability, you love everyone unconditionally and equally in the same way God's loved you, he says, you're going to do a really good job with all the other miscellaneous laws and rules and regulations and requirements of Scripture. To love God with everything within you and to love people because the scripture and Jesus himself command us to love people as God loves people. That is, without class conditions, unconditionally, with no profiling, regardless of who they are, God wants us to do this. And he says, if you want to do well spiritually, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some of us may say, well, Who's our neighbor and what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? Well, let me simply say this. When the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, the implied idea is God knows we already love ourselves. We all love ourselves. I can show you this by photography. You know, people were very into taking pictures today, of course, because of phones and this and that. You take pictures, you know, we just had family in from California. You take this group picture and then everybody wants to see it. Who's the first person you look for in that picture? Yourself. Oh, no, this one's no good. Take another one. Why? Because I don't look good in it. Why? Because you love yourself. If you really didn't love yourself, be like, use that one because I hate... People even say, oh, I hate myself. I'm so ugly. No. If you truly hated yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. True? I hate myself. I'm so ugly. No, no, no. If you hated yourself, be like, I hate my oh, yes, I'm ugly. Man, I'm ugly. Thank goodness. We love ourselves. And what God is saying is, you already love yourself. And he's saying the same love of self-serving, self-care, self-interest. Use that amount of love you already have for yourself and treat everybody else around you the same way. Our neighbor is the person God brings into our path that needs to be shown love. This is what the, the, the teaching of Jesus, remember when he talked about the story of the Good Samaritan? And this man fell along the road and he was beaten up and abused and taken advantage of. And remember, first of all, what happens? Religious leaders come marching by. Spiritual people. And what's the priest do? He comes in, ooh. He needs ministry, but probably the church up the street will take care of him. And he walks around. What's nothing to do with him? 
The Levite does the same. And then ultimately what happens? The good Samaritan, Samaritans hated Jews. You want to talk about racial tension? America's got nothing going on with what's happening between Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans in the days of Christ. There was tremendous animosity. And what happens? The Samaritan, they hated Jews. They hate, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan shows the love of God. And Jesus even says he shows mercy and he goes and he helps. And he gets involved. And Jesus said, that's who someone's neighbor is. It's the person God brings into our path that he says to you, love this person. Show him love. Show him love like nobody else would show them love. And he says, when you do this, he says, you do well. That is, God's well pleased when we love someone because we operate in the law of love. Verse 9, he then says, but if you show partiality, which we've talked about, look what he says, direct language, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors so if we become selective we don't treat people fairly and we begin to use inequality what the bible saying is we quench god's spirit and what's god's spirit want to produce the fruit of the spirit which is what love and when we become selective overly showing favoritism to one person under treating and undervaluing another person when we do this the bible is very direct it doesn't pull punches he says that when you do this you're committing sin it's a sin he says it's not some trivial thing from god's perspective it's sin to show partiality or favoritism to give preferential treatment to one person in your family or to one person in culture or another person among you he says that's sin it's not they're your favorite it's sin and whenever we have an attitude that may manifest discrimination towards a people group or prejudice or mistreatment, he says, that's sin. doesn't matter how you were raised. doesn't matter at the end of the day maybe what your bad experience was. And I know that can be difficult. But you can't take one bad experience and just translate that to every one of a certain people group. He says, if we do that, it's sin. It's wrong, he says, it's not something God overlooks as no big deal. He says there, verse 9, we are convicted by the law if we do this as transgressors. And I would just say this morning, evaluate. Have you been doing this in any way in your life currently? Have you been showing partiality in some way in, in the sphere of your influence in any way to whatever extreme? And if you've been doing it, listen, the Bible says you're guilty of sin. And you need to confess it for what it is and ask the Lord's forgiveness and repent of it. Not continue to do it. And I think James wants us to guard against the temptation of making light of this particular sin as if it's kind of no big deal. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not, like, not like committing adultery or something. It's not like murder or something. It's just a little discrimination in my attitude or it's just a little personal favoritism to this particular person or people. And James says, no, no, no. What, what's he saying? He says, now you're trying to dismiss one sin over another, now you're trying to use partiality among sins. As if somehow this sin of favoritism or prejudice or discrimination is not as bad as some other sin. He's saying that's partiality too. Sin is sin to God. And he wants to guard against this wrong attitude. So he says, verse 10, with that mindset, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, one failure, He's guilty of all, James says. Verse 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, 
but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The point God's word is trying to make here and drive home is it only takes one small violation of any law in any kingdom to become a lawbreaker. And he says the same applies with the kingdom of God, with the king of kings. Whether you break many different laws that a king establishes or you just violate one law, you have now become a lawbreaker regardless. And what the Bible wants us to always remember is that we only have one of two options. Either you're a perfect person or you're a lawbreaker. It only takes one law to be broken to make you a lawbreaker, just like every other lawbreaker. And it's so important that we recognize for a right perspective that once we make one mistake, he says there, if you stumble in one point, you become guilty of all, regardless of how well we may view ourselves from a judicial standpoint, we are a lawbreaker like every other lawbreaker, the Bible saying. No matter what law or how many laws, people from every class of life stumble and make mistakes and fail. We're all lawbreakers. We are all guilty of violating God's holy and perfect law. Every one of us, everybody in this room this morning, I'll freak you out, has got a criminal record. If I ran an eternal background check on every one of us, everybody would be flagged in here. We all have a criminal record, morally and spiritually. And quite frankly, our records are probably a lot longer than we'd be willing to admit and even realize ourselves. We're all lawbreakers. We all fail. That's why James says the same eternal king who said don't commit adultery, he says, keep in mind, he also wrote do not murder. So he says, if you don't break one law, I don't do that. But yet then you turn around and you break another law. He says, look, the same king wrote both laws. You've still disobeyed the king. You're still a transgressor. You're still a lawbreaker. You're still guilty. It only takes one sin to make a person guilty. And I think maybe why James is addressing this here at this point is because sometimes perhaps the sin of partiality or unfair treatment or being judgmental or, or, or showing favoritism to one group over another, or one person over another, or uh, you know, beginning to behave. Sometimes maybe what that's rooted in is we have a little bit too superior of a view of ourselves. And so we begin to almost transfer and think, well, we can kind of play God. And we can kind of determine what's an okay way to treat this person or treat that person because somehow we're, we're better than other people. We're not as faulty as other people and we become a little self-righteous and spiritually snobbish and we feel entitled to make certain judgments. And if anyone would question our judgments, we'd say, well, it's just, you're not, a, you're not realistic. Mm, maybe it's just you're self-righteous. And that you're not willing to admit that you're doing something that's not pleasing before the Lord. And so James says here, do you want an antidote for that? He says, remember, no matter how great you keep all the laws, if you break just one, you're just as guilty as every other human being. So you should be just as humble and you should be just as gracious and merciful to realize, yeah, they're really faulty, but so are you. So are you. And this is what gives us a right perspective and why James says here, verse 12, so speak and do, look what he says, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So James says, look, speak to people, treat people with the awareness that you as well are going to be judged someday. You're going to be held to account. Judged by the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? We saw last week, that's the word of God. 
And it's a law of liberty because here's the glorious thing. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And now the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. And so though, even though we're all guilty and transgressors and lawbreakers, we have someone, Jesus, who through what he's done for us wants to give us mercy and forgiveness and grace and not bring judgment upon us, but liberate us and give us mercy and give us freedom. And that's why he concludes the section, verse 13, for saying, for judgment is without mercy to the one who's showing no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is saying as he drives home his point is when we choose wrongly, and we all do sometimes, Maybe to be too quick to bring down judgment and withhold mercy with a person or people. He says, we're establishing a pattern that may ultimately, if we're not careful, come back around and we may reap that same thing in our own lives. The Bible tells us that Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And what James is saying here is be careful. People are going to fail. They're going to disappoint you. They're going to blow it. Everybody's going to make mistakes. But he's saying, but how are you going to relate to them? Because you can always decide. You, when somebody fails, hurts, disappoints, makes mistakes, annoys we always have the freedom in that moment to say, okay, this may even be justified. What they did was wrong. But am I going to mingle mercy into this here? Or am I just going to bring down the hammer? And James says, no, that if you show no mercy, what you sow, the Bible says you reap. And someday when you fail and you're really needing some mercy, we say what goes around comes around. Then all of a sudden you find you're being judged by a really hard standard. And somehow God sometimes is saying, you see what that tastes like? You see what that feels like? That's why Jesus says with the same measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And he says mercy triumphs over judgment. And how do we know that? Because we all deserve the judgment of God. But what happened? The love of God allowed mercy to triumph through Jesus because of what he did for us upon the cross. And I would say this morning, whenever you find yourself in that spot, and you will continuously, where you're wrestling between, okay, do I really bring down the judgment here? Or do I extend a little bit of mercy here? May mercy win out. You can't lose that way. May mercy win out.